Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. And joining us today is retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlozer, a former two-time commander of U.S. Army Aviation, who commanded the 101st Airborne Division in Afghanistan. He is now the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell, our sponsor. He's joining us today to discuss his book, Marathon War, Leadership in Combat in Afghanistan, which is uh, a terrific and insightful read. Sir, thanks so very much for making time for us. Um, Bago, thanks for having me on the show. Really appreciate it. It's, uh, it's, an, it's an honor and a pleasure to finally uh, have you on. Uh, before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. Fink Contieri, Marinette Marine sponsors our naval coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. General Motors Defense sponsors our coverage of technology. L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all-domain command and control. And Huntington Ingalls Industries is sponsoring our coverage of the Navy League's annual Sea Airspace Conference and trade show next week. Uh, sir, great book uh, with a general officer's perspective of a particularly difficult job at a particularly difficult time in a 20-year war in the 2008-2009 period where many people had forgotten about you know, the importance of that mission and the hard work that everybody was doing, sort of a little bit of out of sight, out of mind, which unfortunately this war is even more becoming now. Uh, the Biden administration is drawing down the US troop presence to about 650 uh, in Afghanistan. So it's not quite zero, but it's not the several thousand that were there uh, just a few months ago. Some veterans say that this is a long overdue pullout, while others believe that we must maintain a lasting presence in the country. Is this the right call at the right time as somebody who commanded there and sacrificed so much? Bago, I think that uh, what the result of this is going to be is, is going to be a very negative for the United States of America. Um, I do think that uh, without having that uh, the backbone that our advisors and our logis, uh, logistic support as well as our air support has been providing to the Afghan army and then overall to the Afghan government. Without that, I, I think that the, the Afghan government and its army are going to have a huge challenge trying to hold back the Taliban from both militarily taking over as well as politically taking over the country within perhaps months, certainly not longer than a year or two. There are those, though, who say, um, and you, uh, you know, painfully recount this in your book, right? Working to help villages, building bonds with those villages, and then having those villages effectively betray you that lead, led to the loss of uh, your troops, uh, as well as among your Afghan allies and international partners. Um, you know, Ben Wallace, the British Defense Secretary last week, you know, I asked him what were some of the lessons when he visited was in town a couple of weeks ago, I should say, I asked him what the lessons learned were. And he said, look, one of them was that 20 years may not have been long enough for this. And there are folks who look at it and say, well, look, the government is corrupt. The job was too big. How, I mean, how long would it have taken for us to accomplish this mission? And what's the right footprint going forward? ultimately well, put, in your perspective. Well, let's put a laser focus on this, Vago. First, the, the initial mission right after 2001-9-11 as we went in was, was twofold. One was to bring justice to uh, al-Qaeda through capturing and killing them, and then also to do the same to the Taliban who had harbored al-Qaeda and refused to let them go. And uh, while it took longer to eventually uh, kill uh, Osama bin Laden, in fact, 10 years, 
within about two years, we had actually effectively cleared Afghanistan of both the Al-Qaeda as well as the Taliban. They had ran into uh, a safe haven called Pakistan. Uh, so that initial portion of that mission was complete. Uh, the rest of the story, and and I, and I think as you know, as Secretary Wallace or Mr. Wallace is talking to, is is that what we looked around, we found basically no viable economy, no viable political system, no viable way to ensure security for the normal Afghan, and that's where we rolled up our sleeves as NATO and other allies and tried to effectively uh, uh, change uh, what had been a culture as well as a political system, as well as an economy. And uh, it's a fair amount of hubris there, I would assume, I think, uh, given uh, what was actually possible. And uh, it's a great lesson learned, I hope, uh, on the part of uh, uh, large countries like ours and the UK and others as we uh, work, try to work effectively around the world to uh, bring either a better economic system, a better political system to uh, people around the world. Um, let me, uh, and I want to get to the lessons learned in in just a moment. But you mentioned sort of uh, hubris, right? I mean, before we got started, uh, I remember Colin Powell calling uh, Afghanistan the the graveyard of empires, and and certainly whether you were Alexander the Great, the Romans, uh, the Brits, the the Russians, um, you know, there were tombstones erected uh, in Afghanistan, and now there's potentially going to be a tombstone erected for for the American empire. Um, what's the right way for us to have done it, right? Because time and again, we Americans have a very can-do spirit and we will succeed where everybody else has failed. Look, you know, the Northern Alliance and we put these guys on the run on, on horseback uh, with laser guided munitions. That part of it worked well. The question was, what did we need to do next? And then the magnitude of the challenge dawns on you and actually, I mean, it was interesting time and again, as a as a commander there, you found massive, you know, like your your to do list and your little green book seemed short, but it was like rebuild economy. Right. That's that's a very big, short statement. What are the things that we could have done differently? Because there are folks who are saying, look, instead of doing several trillion dollars in the way we did this, we could have actually had a lighter footprint, been less ambitious and maybe been equally successful. What? should another model have been as somebody who experienced it firsthand? Yeah, I think what would have been a su more successful model maybe than the one we well, had? Well, this isn't really a binary answer. I mean, you know, it isn't like, just go ahead, go in and do what I just mentioned, which is clear Al-Qaeda and, and the Taliban and then leave, because essentially there would have been a safe haven and, and uh, both organizations would have came back in and uh, would be uh, much worse for the uh, America and our allies uh, way earlier. Um, the opposite is not just that you are going to do what I basically am about to tell you. Uh, there's something in between. But what I would say, what I say and what I believe and I hint at this in the book in Marathon War is, is that I believe that we turned the government and the economic system um, way back or too early back to the Afghans themselves. And in other words, we made assumptions that they were ready uh, to rule the, uh, their country from a central position in Kabul, you know, with a central, centralized government. We made assumptions that the that there wasn't a huge amount of corruption and therefore the economy may be able to flourish as long as it just received some assistance. We made assumptions that if we build that Afghan army like we've built uh, other armies around the world, they will rapidly gain capability and be able to protect themselves. And all three of those assumptions were wrong. Let me go back and I know I'm taking time, but when I, when I was one year old, I was in, the, in Germany 
my father was still in the army of occupation. This was eight years after the end of World War II. Uh, when I was there as a baby, they used a script that was from issued by the United States Army. Uh, I could go on and on about the level of um, control and then over time, the level of handholding and over time, finally training wheels and then eventually uh, us allowing and positioning Germany to take over its affairs. And you can see that uh, uh, I think that that was well worth the, the investment. Let me just say that we still have, you know, tens of thousands of troops in Germany because it was important to America and still is. We didn't take that tact here. And, I, and, and I'm not suggesting that it would have taken tens of thousands of troops in Afghanistan. I truly do believe we could have done this and stayed the course longer than what we have um, and uh, potentially, you know, uh, had a bit more of a successful outcome because the next couple of years are going to, I believe, be uh, quite grim. So somewhere in between, a balance in between the light hand and what I've suggested, which is essentially we gave the country up to the Afghans way too early. You know, there were those who, you know, right, the industrialization of a society, Japan uh, and Germany certainly transitioned and Italy more quickly because they were industrialized uh, societies. But at the end of the day, the point is well taken. And, and a point that folks make is that there was a lot of active presence. There was a Marshall Plan. Uh, all of these allies and partners uh, that had defeated Germany, that were the allies that defeated Germany also were investing in Germany's success uh, as a bulwark against uh, capitalism and, and ditto for, for Japan. There's a sense that this was a 20-year war, but actually, after we did what we did, the mission was a little bit on autopilot. You found when you arrived there that you didn't have the resources to do the job. And indeed, you talk about the war sort of really starting in, in 2010, right? Should we think of this as a 20-year war or, or actually a 10-year war that, you know, how, how do we need to think about how we prosecuted this war, frankly. Yeah, there's no doubt, Vago, that we took our eye after about 2002 and 2003. We moved over to Iraq. We took our resources in. We took our basically our attention uh, to that conflict, and we stayed there until essentially 2008 when um, I felt, you know, was at, at risk. I said, bet, bet my stars. It was at risk that I publicly announced after talking with the Secretary of Defense, Bob Gates, and my boss, uh, you know, Admiral Mullen and, and, uh, and others, that uh, we were not going to win this war on any kind of a timeline that America would assume. So I, I made it, I took it pub public. And at that time, it took another year to get the resources to actually have a chance of winning on any kind of timeline that America would, would do. So you're absolutely right. There was a huge gap in the attention span in which things just sort of boiled on, you know, they, they simmered, they didn't boil. And, uh, and really not a lot happened at that time uh, to help, uh, you know, close out uh, this conflict. But unfortunately, right, that was 10 years that we lost that now we wish we might've wanted back. Right? Absolutely, that's true, yes. Let me take you to the point of what a sustaining presence should be in the country, right? The administration, uh, this administration, like the preceding administration, was putting enormous pressure on the Afghan government, negotiate, end this, we want to get out. Uh, it, you know, This administration started it with a demarche, not all, you know, a little bit even tougher than the preceding administration, the, uh, put a lot of pressure on Afghans to release prisoners. 
the, the Taliban prisoners were released and constituted a ready army with which to fight the Afghan government at a time we were withdrawing. What is the smart footprint that we need, whether from an intel, counterterrorism, special operations, aviation, and strike, that in order to be able to help the Afghans in this um, really difficult period um, stave off complete collapse? Yeah, in my opinion, Bago, um, something like the size uh, footprint of uh, one of our uh, advisory force brigades that the Army set up, and we now have six of those. Um, you know, so about 3,000 individuals, then they're not there to do any fighting at all. They're there to advise and to help with logistics, which I think uh, any warfighter knows is uh, the hardest part. The tactics is, you know, uh, freshman stuff. Logistics are for seniors. Um, and then, of course, the air support. Uh, I do believe that uh, air support from inside the country, we should never have given up Bagram. So we would have had to, through contractors, basically secured Bagram Air, air Base. But a, a footprint inside the country at Bagram, I think, would have been uh, very significant. An advisory brigade of about 3,000 people uh, and then some air support inside the country. That would all enable us to do things underneath the table, such as have good intelligence, human intelligence, right. uh, and it enables the, the CIA and others to uh, be able to do the things that only they can do when they have uh, a fair amount of security inside the country. That's what I would suggest. Um, and obviously, we have decided against that. Um, and there is this view that somehow the Taliban or an Afghan movement, they won't allow Al Qaeda to, to reestablish itself. Um, do you believe that? And, and or put another way, how quickly do you believe Afghanistan again becomes a haven from which um, terror groups can reach out? to try to reconstitute themselves, whether against the United States uh, or anybody else around the world? I, I believe that is happening right now. So I do believe that it will become a safe haven. I do not believe the Taliban one iota uh, on their promise, quote unquote, to uh, disassociate themselves with Al-Qaeda. I think you're currently seeing uh, Al-Qaeda, in fact, uh, assisting the Taliban in certain amounts of their military maneuvers there within uh, Afghanistan against the Afghan army. I'll also say, Vago, that, uh, you know, when I was there, it wasn't just Al-Qaeda. There was a syndicate of terrorist groups. And you're going to see, the, in this case here, the Islamic State more likely than not try to regain some of its foothold in the east. Um, that it had just in the last couple of years. And uh, Islamic State is another clear threat to America and our allies uh, around the world. Um, so I think it's a, just a matter of, of months, but maybe a year before we actually are aware that there's going to be some uh, level of uh, uh, plotting and planning and training uh, against the West and, uh, and against, uh, really, it's the G20 almost uh, that uh, these groups are against. How much harder is it going to be for us to go back to the country and reestablish? We've heard Hamid Karzai, uh, 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 understandably, right, not uh, the leader of the country and somebody problematic who uh, you uh, had to deal with as well when you were in command. Um, but, you know, it said, like, look, once you guys abandon us, you're not really welcome back. Um, you know, how much harder does it become for the United States and its allies to reestablish ourselves in Afghanistan after we've left, let's say in six to nine months or a year as you suggest? Yeah, I think it's going to be 
will be much more challenging. I mean, for an example, you know, to reestablish yourself, you normally need a base. And, uh, you know, if let's just say that Kabul International is able to be maintained by the Turks and others, and so it does not go over to Taliban control, uh, it still is not the right place to try to bring in troops and bring in counterterrorism forces and their aircraft and things of that nature. We made a big mistake by... Uh, by uh, turning over the uh, Bagram airfield. Uh, And I just want to remind people that uh, the airfield doesn't necessarily need to be open. The Taliban know exactly what that airfield uh, uh, represents. Uh, And they could easily, all you got to do is crater the runway in about three places and it's finished for a lengthy period of time. So it's not something that we could easily do a la 2014 back into Iraq. This is a little bit more challenging. Uh, Just looking at the map, uh, people would realize just the sheer distances that uh, uh, these forces would have to fly to be able to do uh, what you've just talked about. Um, and, and one of the things we found, which I thought, well, found fascinating about your book is all the other subordinate concerns, right? I mean, as you said, it, it's not just you know having a running airfield. It's how to defend that airfield, how to defend that distance from the airfield to make sure that nobody can crater your runway, thereby uh, interrupting your ability to both project power and, and, and to uh, uh, maintain logistics streams. Let me ask you uh, about how, what were the lessons learned from your perspective in the wake of this uh, operation? Um, because there is this sense that we are very, very not good at learning lessons. Um, you entered the force right after Vietnam. Uh, you served in Germany during the Cold War uh, and elsewhere around the world, right? I mean, so you're, you're, you're post-Vietnam in that uh, all of your mentors and people who you served with had, had uh, experience, especially in the aviation community in Vietnam. Once we got through with that uh, counterinsurgency, we decided we would focus on real soldiering and the fold the gap. Uh, and, and then all of a sudden we found ourselves uh, relearning all the lessons from Vietnam and once again, trying to get rid of some of these lessons and focus on real soldiering in a great power context. From your standpoint, what are the important lessons to learn? And what are the lessons of this war that you think are equally applicable to a great power? Conflict? Well, I think, yeah, first and foremost, I think, and you've hinted at it, Vago, is, is that there is no on again and then it's off um, type of um, future for warfare. So in other words, our military needs to ensure that it's actually able to um, plan and execute either conflict in a counterinsurgency or a counterterrorism, which is sometimes different and often was in Afghanistan um, context. At the same time, it needs to be able to be modernized and prepared for uh, major power conflict. It's And you can't turn the switch off and no one else is going to pay attention. In other words, you can't just devote yourself to Afghanistan and Iraq and then forget about your other major power uh, potential competitors out there. And I think that that weight there was the number one uh, lesson that I hope we learned uh, from the last 20 years, because we are paying the price now. And uh, for a period of time, we lacked the deterrence capability against some of these major competitors that uh, we would have wanted to have. And so that's number one. I, the number two thing um, has to do with, I would say that um, on, at a tactical level, when I had a squad out on the Pakistani border and they made a mistake or they shot over the, say, over the border, it went from being a tactical problem that may be solved at a battalion or brigade, say 300, commanding 300, commanding 3,000, or my level, commanding 30,000. 
normally that would not have been a strategic thing, but it often did become a thing where an issue where all of a sudden, not only the secretary of defense was calling me or the CENTCOM commander or the chief, the chairman of the joint chiefs. Um, but sometimes I would actually have to respond to the white house itself. And we need to always remember that in many conflicts, uh, the differentiation between tactics and, and the strategic impact is there, there is not that big of a difference. In other words, you can have that. And then therefore we need to prepare our leaders because uh, frankly, I don't feel that uh, as much as I had plenty of time to prepare myself uh, you know, for this command uh, in Afghanistan in 2008 and 2009, I concentrated tactically. I did not concentrate strategically. And that was not not as good as I should have been. So I was not as good as I should have been. Let me um, let me uh, push on that uh, a little bit. That was uh, fascinating in the book, how right you're one of the best and brightest among the best educated general officers, extraordinary experience in the special operation community with your Delta background as well, which, which uh, is um, extraordinary uh, at the 160th Aviation Regiment. You are a soldier soldier. You're an engineer uh, on top of all of that. And yet, time and again, you note it was your engagements with Ann Patterson, for example, the US former U.S. ambassador in Pakistan, that gave you real strategic insight, cultural insight, some exchanges you had with whether Frontier Corps leaders or, uh, or uh, uh, General Pasha, uh, for example, where you were given these sort of strategic and cultural insights you didn't have. What can the Army do better because again, you noted you were tactically proficient, but time and again, coming up with these big strategic problems that you had to deal with. How does the army do a better job preparing its general officers to be more strategically minded than tactically uh, exquisite perhaps? Yeah, so I, and that is a great question. And what I would suggest Fago is, is, and again, this is clearly Monday morning, you know, a quarterback and I'm looking back with now 11 or 12 years of hindsight. But we don't really have, and we certainly didn't in my day, you know, in preparing as I, I was a major general and had already done some very broadening experiences. You know, I was the deputy director of the National Counterterrorism Center. I was the first director of the War on Terrorism for Secretary Rumsfeld and Chairman Myers. Those were broadening and, and they, they forced me to think strategically. But what I didn't do is when, when I knew I had 15 months to prepare not only my unit, the 101st Airborne Division, uh, and units that would be assigned to me for this, this 15 months of deployment in Afghanistan in a very complex war, I had every, every tool in the, in fact, I had more tools than I had time to prepare my units. Um, and I had more, I had plenty of opportunity to prepare my subordinate commanders. What I did not have and nor did I have any assistance, really very much assistance, is preparing myself. It was all, I mean, there, was no, there were no formal courses. There were no four weeks of, hey, I'm going to take a, this two-star general who is about to be on the cusp between the tactics and the operational war and the strategic war, and we're going to go spend, you know, whatever it would take, a, you know, a week in Washington talking and thinking and learning, uh, and then elsewhere, you know, uh, I just didn't have those, you know, and so um, you find in, in marathon war, I am struggling to understand, like, for an example, Nuristan, you know, and I would be hardly the last person. Rudyard Kipling had some issues with uh, that area of the world. And, and, and so did uh, Winston Churchill and many others um, in their day. Um, but I did not 
have that. And, and I think that we need to be thinking about how do we prepare our senior leaders, especially those that operate on those seams between what we call the last tactical portion of the war, which is a division, the operational side of the war, which is a regional portion, which I clearly had with the regional command East and NATO commanding troops of, from all NATO countries, and the strategic part where I was you know, giving advice to the Secretary of Defense very routinely, in fact, uh, every two weeks, uh, as well as meeting with the president from time to time, you know, president of the United States, as well as the ministers of defense, the ministers of the interior in Afghanistan, and then, as you know, the ambassadors um, on a very routine basis. So pre preparation, uh, that's probably what I, you know, strategic preparation focused on my level of command, focused on me. That's what I lacked. Well, what were the lessons you think learned uh, right, because uh, some, you know, the the this experience is going to color commanders for the next few decades. Right, there were there were the young first tour Jeff Schlosers and Mark Millies and Jim McConville's that'll be uh, tomorrow's uh, leaders, maybe someplace in the Pacific or back again in Afghanistan. Uh, mm -hmm. God forbid. Um, ultimately, what are the lessons that you think are as applicable to great power conflict as as anything else? Right, what what were the things? from these wars, and I should note uh, for the audience, right, you're an Iraq war veteran as well, uh, that, that you think were, are applicable, because there are some who say there's, that none of it is applicable, which I think is completely wrong, but. Yeah, so I would say always, always try to think strategically. Um, in other words, what is going to be the impact, not only on this little plot of earth, wherever an incident occurs or wherever or whatever I'm trying to accomplish. Say you're not even in your conflict, but you're thinking, trying to think about how are you going to do your job and, and how is your unit, your organization is going to try to do that. Try to place it in context strategically, which means thinking in time. You know, there used to be a great course at Harvard. There's a great book called Thinking in Time, by the way. Um, but force yourself to to think in time. So in other words, what happened here before? What, what can I learn from that? You know, uh, Patton uh, was quite famous or infamous, however you want to look at it, uh, as far as his study and uh, in some cases, emulation of uh, previous uh, conflicts going back thousands of years on the turf that he was being tasked to fight. And I think that that's probably the number one, I would say, lesson learned as you go forward. The second part of it is, is, is that... Um, always be open to uh, uh, good advice from others out there that are outside of your, um, say, your specialty or your profession. Uh, you know, I, I kind of pride myself as we were preparing, uh, you know, my unit uh, that we actually reached out to previous commanders and actually a previous ambassador, uh, Ron Newman. But we did that in, in such short periods of time that and we didn't do it in a very extensive way. In other words, we didn't go beyond just you know the profession of arms and the ambassadors um, to reach out to sociologists, uh, you know, to, to economists, to uh, police chiefs, or to, I mean, corruption is a huge deal in Afghanistan. We just barely, barely understood the level of corruption when I was there. It's much more apparent now. But uh, what could we have done about it? One, we had, to, we had to understand it, prepare for it, and we didn't do a very good job. So, I mean, uh, those come to mind strategically, Vago. Did you have enough white space? Uh, because, you know, reading the book, you did try to pace yourself 
knowing that this is a long deployment, don't, you know, break everybody, don't do the typical, you know, type A army uh, load, right? Let's spread this out. But at the end of the day, you found yourself coming back often uh, to uh, your quarters and then have to do another four or five hours of administrative work and promotion stuff and everything else. Are we doing this the wrong way where we're not giving general officers actually the white space to be able to think strategically that too much administrivia is crawling into it, even when you're in a war zone, fighting a hot war, a hot, complicated war? Well, Lago, I would say that, you know, almost all the things that I ended up that actually tended to exhaust me were needed, such as going to a ramp ceremony to bid goodbye to the remains of a soldier or going to our joint operations center at two o'clock in the morning to authorize a strike right on the border of Pakistan. Um, yes, the paperwork's immense. And I would say that in other military services, it's getting absolutely worse, uh, as well as in the Army, I think, in combat. We need to probably take a uh, weight reduction pill on that. But the, many of the things that exhausted me, I had only I could do. As we go uh, into great power competition, we're still going to have to fight terrorism. What do you think the right way to do that is a sustainable way, a global campaign that will continue to have to be fought? Because there's this complacency... You know, there, there's a lot of blood and treasure or hard work and sacrifice that's had to be made in order not to have another 9-11. We've had other incidents around the world, but it's only vigilance that that does that. And as you note in the book, each person we've killed is another potential recruit that may turn on us, unfortunately, for cultural and a whole bunch of other uh, reasons. I guess it's a two-part question. Could we have done this in a better way not to create that kind of uh, potential recruits? And second, what's the sustainable way for us to do this over time as our attention and focus is, is going to have to also go elsewhere simultaneously? Yeah, clearly, um, as far as, you know, looking backwards, um, the preciseness uh, of some, some of our operations was not as good as it got to be later on. In other words, so, you know, in taking out a, a terrorist and three or four of his brothers or his entire family, uh, created uh, a huge number of uh, fellow terrorists that before uh, were not going to target us, but then have. And so precision is really important, and we didn't get as precise as we needed to be until later in the war. Uh, I will say, I'm going to paraphrase something in Marathon War. I say in there, you know, uh, we may forget about Afghanistan, Afghan won't forget us. Same thing about terrorism. We may try to forget terrorists, uh, but they're not going to forget us. The, the era of terror is not over. And uh, in spite of 20 years of fighting within the Afghan and the war on terrorism global context, it's not done. And if we need to continue to be prepared. We need to continue to pressure. Otherwise, uh, we will have an attack on our own country yet again. I, I'd be remiss, sir, if I didn't ask you uh, the, the last Afghanistan question, which is, you know, several trillions of dollars, several thousand dead, tens of thousands wounded. And that's just on the U.S. side. Was it all worth it? And this is what I tell the families of the fallen, Bago, as well as my American citizens, my fellow citizens. Look, uh, from 9-11 until now, we have not been attacked in our country. And uh, a large part of it was due to our soldiers, Marines, sailors, and airmen out there fighting in Afghanistan, as well as in Iraq, uh, putting pressure on al-Qaeda. Uh, the second part of it is, is and maybe even more important, is, is that there's a whole generation now of Afghans that they were born right after 9-11. They're in university right now. Uh, life expectancy is 10 years longer than what it was when we went into that country. Women can become journalists. They can become radio announcers. They can become politicians and doctors and, uh, and businesswomen. 
that didn't exist before. It's a promise for the future. I just hope they can hold on to it as this next uh, uh, leaf uh, or the next page turns in the book about Afghanistan. Um, let me ask you very quickly. Uh, you uh, had the great honor of, uh, you know, the greatest honor for an Army aviator, uh, perhaps, uh, short of commanding the 160th, uh, is uh, becoming the uh, Army Aviation Association of America's president, you were, you had to make a very, very tough call uh, twice. Uh, it's one of the greatest family events where the Army Aviation family from around the world gathers and Army aviators are from around the world, from other armies gather as well. Uh, what did you feel you accomplished in your tour, despite the disappointment of not having, you know, having people convene in person? Yeah, so we ended up having to not only cancel both of the two years worth of conventions or, you know, as you said, Quad A is a family event, but also a bunch of smaller events where we support Army aviation and military families as well and honor them through a different award system. We canceled, had to cancel it all. Uh, to be utterly frank, uh, the financial viability of, of, of keeping Quad A uh, alive was probably the most important thing that I and the team were able to accomplish during that time frame. Uh, you know, so we made uh, arrangements for both of those shows and then had to cancel them uh, within about months of, of taking place. And so the financial viability was critical. The other thing that we actually did was is that uh, we tried to reach out and bring in youth into Quad A as far as uh, into our chapters and into our formal national executive board. Uh, so we appointed a sergeant, a warrant officer with W1, and a second lieutenant to the national executive board, and they are making some really significant uh, changes in uh, how we reach out to the youth of America that are, are now our young military leaders. And I think that those two things were the most important, Bago. Um, let me ask you, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you in the last minute we have remaining. I know there's not much you can say about this, but the last I checked, Bell is competing uh, for both uh, the future long range uh, assault uh, aircraft as well as the future armed reconnaissance uh, mission. Uh, you've got an RFP out. What can you tell us about where you guys are now uh, in responding to the Army and where you take both of these programs, obviously competing against Boeing and Boeing Sikorsky uh, that are as uh, eager to win it as you guys are? Uh, there absolutely are. And in fact, I think both of us would say to uh, the American people that it's absolutely necessary that we modernize our military and our Army aviation fleet uh, now rather than waiting another 10 years. So we're very uh, uh, hopeful that uh, the Army will be able to proceed with both its FARA program, the attack reconnaissance and the long range assault. The long range assault is in the RFP. And I cannot really say much more, but we hope for a down select uh, within the next uh, 10 months. The attack reconnaissance, we are about 50% built on our uh, demonstrator aircraft that uh, will be out there uh, flying next year. And uh, it's going to be an awesome capability for uh, the armed reconnaissance mission. So uh, feature vertical lift, support it. Tell your congressman. That's a, that's a great admonition, sir. Uh, thanks so very much for joining us. Absolute pleasure uh, having you on. Would like to continue this uh, conversation because there are a whole myriad of other uh, field leadership issues uh, that I would love to get uh, into uh, with you as well. Uh, thanks so very much for joining us. Uh, my pleasure, Vago. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that.
Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.